0: morning, please turn to Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Lately, I've been receiving some unexpected but very pleasant surprises. Some people from the long distant past that have stayed true to the word, they show it. Once in a while, I'm even surprised that people from the overflows walk down the hall, and I say, you're still here. (laughs) But they're also, I'm told, and I could pick her out from the crowd anyways, Barb Paisley, I think some of you might remember her. She's back from way back, and you look the same. Let's give her a warm welcome. And you know what you're here for? Somebody has to watch over Nancy. Yes, give her her a warm welcome. Also, Frank and Madeline are over there too. 1987, last time I saw you in your uniform, then this week. Let's give them a warm welcome too. We receive one another as Christ received us into the glory of God, sometimes from the past, sometimes from far distant places. And one more person, I wish. Now, we've also enjoyed the rich fellowship of Reverends Michael and Lynn Manley. They're back there with Pastor Brown. Will you, will you guys stand up for a minute? Because I just want to do something here. Just let's let, welcome them too. Because just all you got to do is all you got to do is look at them, and you you start to have joy. But I want you to know that first of all. I'm getting words from the Lord now, or more like confirmations. It was Lynn's birthday yesterday, so, right? Is that correct? But more importantly, Lynn has written a couple of books, and I just started one of them, and they knock you back on your heels, and she has written a phenomenal book on for, two of them on forgiveness and a particular traumatic series of events that she went through, and the testimony of her forgiveness— Is actually very remarkable and on August 18th she will be speaking in a seminar on forgiveness what a change from the evil age and the desire to get back at people and expose people divine forgiveness so we want to keep that in prayer let's in fact pray now for Lynn's upcoming speaking father we thank you for the remarkable and powerful message of your forgiveness which we have experienced Many of us here have experienced the forgiveness that you've given to us in Christ Jesus, and you've even commanded us to forgive even as we have been forgiven because of Christ Jesus. We pray that her message will resound not only in her conference, but in the hearts of many throughout this generation, for forgiveness not only releases perpetrators, but also the victims of violence, the victims of oppression they release themselves through forgiveness we pray then that this seminar will be beyond her expectations in its impact and that you'll bless her and give her the joy of the Lord in which to convey the messages that are coming up we thank you for the privilege of fellowshipping and I thank you personally father for the fellowship that I have with each and with every person in this place it's been the joy of my life it's been the happiness of of God shared with your redeemed people and we thank you in Christ's name amen thanks a lot sorry didn't mean to sneak up on you we have there's a couple I like to call them mild laws that rule our time together and it comes from James chapter 1 be more ready to listen when you gather together be quick to hear Slow to anger. Now, that means sometimes a preacher might say things that might anger you, believe it or not. And if you get angry, tell God about it. Complain to him. If, I'm, if I've been harsh, he'll talk to me. Let him do it. He does it better than you, and he has done it. I've had a history of times of being dealt with by God. The second thing is no third really be ready to hear quick to hear quick to listen slow to anger and slow to speak because as much as I don't like to speak in everyday life I have to speak now it's my job and I have to speak in a way that glorifies my savior and your savior Jesus Christ so if you'd like to speak do it afterwards and Then it says to receive the engrafted word. The word becomes engrafted in our souls. And it becomes salvation. The engrafted word which is able to save your souls. That means it delivers, it preserves, it builds you up right now in this evil age. It lets you know that from God's standpoint, all are living. And from God's viewpoint, all is all right. Despite all that's going on in your life, in your family, in this world. So, with that in mind, we'll go to the Word of God. Romans 117 is where I want to segue. This past week, I spoke two messages on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and I gathered up pretty much all that I had on the subject because the question came up again, what about the rich man and especially. What about the rich man in Hades? And it came up again with our Mississippi crew that was up for the week, and we are expecting our Knoxville DVD group representatives this week, incidentally. But what I've done is I skipped a little bit of something, so I'm going to do part three of that. So despite what I said at the beginning of the message on Wednesday, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, part three, the first two parts, Wednesday and Thursday, will actually be in the Romans series. I think there'll be 68 and 69 messages. Today I'm going to mention something in the first part and stitch this parable into Romans. So it will be a, there will be a segue right back into Romans, and I think that's what I want to do this morning under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So today's message will be the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, part three, and then we'll segue into what is the thesis verse of Romans, the, really the lead verse or the verse that kind of sums up everything, Romans 1.17. And so I'm going to entitle the second half of the message, Whose Righteousness? Whose righteousness does the gospel reveal? So in the fate of the dead, we mentioned this book this past week, It's a book written by Richard Bauckham, and it's called The Fate of the Dead. In chapter 4, he deals with the rich man and Lazarus, the parable. Now, we've shown that this parable in no way, in fact, this parable subverts the whole notion of an everlasting punishment for incurable sinners, The one who started that rumor is not anyone in the Bible. It's not found anywhere in the Law and the Prophets, as we've seen. The whole Old Testament does not have that doctrine, whether you think it does or not. And whether you have read that it does or not, it does not have it anywhere in the Old Testament in the Law and the Prophets. And nor is it anywhere in Paul's epistles, not once anywhere ever in all of Paul's epistles. You'd think if there was such a place, Paul would warn us about it after 13 epistles, after writing about 30 or more percent of the New Testament. He doesn't. Despite the idea that people have mistranslated that in the New Testament, Jesus never mentioned such a place except here in order to overturn the idea. He subverts it because the idea came from two sources, really. And the Pharisees were supposed to be the guardians of the Old Testament scriptures. And so were the Sadducees and the scholars and the scribes. And Jesus called them all hypocrites because they did not guard sufficiently from the influx of a doctrine of immortal souls suffering in eternal hell. And they imported it from two places, Egypt with the myth of Osiris and Setmei, which came into and was adapted by the Jewish writers in the Talmud and other writings. And from Plato, the great philosopher Plato mentioned in three of his writings, in Phaedo, that's P-H-A-E-D-O, in Georges, G-O-R-G-I-A-S, and in his Republic, he mentions a place of immortal and endless punishment afterlife for what he calls incurable sinners. Three times Plato mentions it, and it comes from Egypt and the Hellenistic cultures. And the Pharisees were not sufficient in their guardianship of the word because they let this doctrine into Israel. And then the doctrine was not sufficiently guarded by the Vulgate, the Latin translations, by Augustine, by Jerome, and others. They let the doctrine of a place of immortal sufferings, the immortal soul's sufferings in an eternal hell, which Jesus Christ spoke the parable of the rich man and Lazarus precisely to overturn it, to destroy that whole notion. Because it is, of course, an attack on God who is love, an attack of God who is righteous. And as we'll see what that means in a moment, God's righteousness doesn't allow For such a thing, even for the most incurable sinners, and you always think of one or two in history. What about them? I say, what about Christ and his death on the cross? How much does that mean to you? And is it more meaningful to you than the sinfulness of certain sinners that you think deserve an eternal hell, including people that have wronged you? That's pastoral. So the rich man in Lazarus, Richard Bauckham does it. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this today. I've documented these things, and I have the documentation. I can rock you with the documentation. I can rock you with the docu. I mean the scriptural documentation, and I mean I could do it all day long. I don't have the time to. It took me 40 years to get to where I am today in the gospel of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universal redemptive impact of the cross. And it took me 40 years to see it all from Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, all the way to Revelation 22, 21, where the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ is proclaimed for all without exception. Last word in the Bible, pantone all, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is redemptive grace for all. It took 40 years for me to see the span of all the scriptures revealing Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance. And so I can't explain it all in a couple of questions. I'm explaining it in 40 years of teaching, and you can see the progression from 1978 to 2018. You can see the progression if you wanted to study the several thousand hours of tapes, which I don't think anybody really wants to do. In the parable in the rich man and Lazarus, telling this parable, it's found in Luke 16, 16 through 31, really 16, 19 to 31, Jesus used a motif or a way of speaking that had originated with, quote, the Egyptian story of Setmi. this is a mythological name, and Si Osiris, an Egyptian story, and then later Jewish stories that were derived from it. Apparently they derived from it all the way up to the Jewish Talmud, which records it. In the Talmud, there is the story is essentially recorded, only the names have changed to protect the innocent, as they say in dragnet. But the Talmud was written after the New Testament, but it also reveals a storyline that had been around among Jewish writers for hundreds of years. So, this story made its way into Jewish literature, and evidently its mythical depiction of the places of the dead. I said mythical depiction of the places of the dead. I said mythical depiction of the places of the dead was adopted by some Jewish writers who had failed to guard the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, from the invasion of pagan concepts from Egyptian and Greek mythology. Augustine, Jerome, and other translators also failed the church by denying the Greek language in the words aeonios and idios and hades and thanatos In other words, and translating them as eternal punishment, eternal fire, etc., none of which was intended by God or by the original prophets who wrote them or the New Testament writers that wrote them. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah was not destroyed by everlasting fire, but by literally fire from another world. It was a historical catastrophe. Number two, Sodom and Gomorrah was not destroyed because of supposed homosexuality or bestiality or perversions there. It was destroyed because of their pride, Ezekiel 1649, their abundance of bread and prosperity, and their neglect of the poor, just like the rich man here in Lazarus, their neglect of the poor. Ezekiel 16:49. Furthermore, Sodom and all of the metroplex of cities destroyed historically, at that time will be restored in the eschaton. The eschaton is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in Ezekiel sixteen fifty five. Sodom will be Will be restored as will all the nations, Egypt, Assyria, and Israel included. Isaiah nineteen twenty five makes that very clear. So does Acts fifteen thirteen to eighteen from Amos chapter nine. But you already knew that. And so all the nations will, in fact, be blessed according to the divine promise given to Abraham. In your seed, that is in Christ, all the nations will be blessed. The eschaton is the parousia, the coming of Christ. And by eschaton, I mean the time when all times become simultaneous and all flesh together sees or experiences the salvation of God, which kicks off a remarkable little book called Luke, Luke 3, 6, all flesh All flesh will see the salvation of God. So Luke doesn't preach a universalistic gospel and then throw in the damnation of a particularly incurable sinner and ruin the whole thing. So again, the story made its way into Jewish literature. It made made its way to the Pharisees who in their pompous asininity walked around as if they were free from this and that other people were going to go to this terrible place, and that sounds a lot like fundamentalist Christians to me, but I won't go there. I wouldn't go there. It might make somebody angry. But anyways, take it up with God. The law and the prophets never spoke of such a place, and I can rock you with the docu, but I don't have time right now. And so... It came from Greek mythology, Greek philosophy, and Egyptian legend. Plato, once again, somebody who's revered in the hallowed halls of academia in universities today. Plato believed in a post-mortem hell of endless punishment for certain incurable, he called them, incurable sinners. He wrote about it in his Republic, 615E3, Phaedo, 113 E2 and Gorges 525 C2. There are evidently as many as seven renditions of this story, this folk tale. It's not, it's not too unlike us saying, as I've said many, many times ad nauseum, a minister, a rabbi, and a priest go into a bar, or they go into the pearly gates and speak to Peter and etc. It's sort of like that story. This is what Jesus does. He tells the story, then he twists it to show that those ideas of the places of the dead are absolutely ridiculous and don't have anything to do with the law and the prophets at all. And he even says that in the course of the telling of the parable, where he uses the word "law and prophets" in two key places. So there are seven renditions. One of them is an example that Bauckham gives is from the Palestinian Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, of course, were the gatherings of the Pharisees. Once again, it's the, I'll have this in print so you can see it, Palestinian Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin. And even though the Talmud was written after Luke's gospel, it reveals and resonates with the Pharisees' doctrine in the time of Jesus Christ. And he was always at odds with them because he was always at odds with everything they taught and did in their hypocrisy, including their doctrine of an eternal, endless punishment for really bad sinners or for Gentiles or for pagans or for people that weren't them. People that are not us are going to hell. Sound familiar? Might as well be on the marquees of half the messages in the American churches today. So, it is evident that this story and ones like it existed for centuries previous to the Talmud. And the story as it appears in the Sanhedrin tractate, These characters are a rich tax collector named Bar Mayan. In Jesus' story, you'll notice the rich man doesn't have a name because he's trying to undo the whole idea of someone who is a particularly slimy sinner perishing forever in hell. But in this case, the rich man's name is Bar Mayim. And the person who takes the place of Lazarus in this is a poor Torah scholar. They both die in the same day. According to this story. According to this folkloric tale. According to. This motif. A poor Torah scholar. Dies on the same day. As a rich tax collector. Named Bar Mayan. The rich man is buried in style. Notice some familiar factors. The poor man. Is unmourned. Kind of has a. Pottersfield burial a friend of the poor man is troubled in this story because in his dream he sees the poor man in paradise at first he says how come my friend is unmourned and this rich man this gets all this stylish funeral And then at that night, he has a dream. He sees his poor friend in paradise, and he sees the tax collector tormented in hell. Is this the Bible message? No, this is a dream inside a folktale, inside a legend, inside a myth. And if you want to make a doctrine out of it, I feel sorry for you. And if you want to build a doctrine on it, I kind of have a little pity for you. Because I was there once too, so I can feel it. I feel how stupid I was once. I don't talk like that to people when you're talking to them. As I've said before, if you get arrogant with the truth that you know, the truth that you know will disappear and you'll become blind to it because arrogance equals blindness. So let's be humble with the truth that we learn. The rich man, when this vision, tries incessantly to drink from a river, but he can't. Notice the element of thirst. The rich man in the parable of the rich man. And Lazarus said, can you send Lazarus down here, dip his finger in water and touch my tongue, etc. But we also know that every tongue will give praise to God. So is there a contradiction? Also, and this is in keeping with many little flickers of images of medieval hells like Dante's Inferno. And Thomas Aquinas' views of hell, and how do you describe such a horrible, horrible place to little children in Sunday school so they won't go there? Yes, so that you can warp them psychologically for the rest of their lives until they get to a grace preacher or a friend who tells them the truth. In reminiscent of the medieval visions of hell that I received at certain churches when I was a young man, he sees in a dream... A woman in this hell also named Miriam. Being punished in hell by being hung by her breasts. That's a typical of a medieval. Read something. No, don't read them. You know, it's like where you sinned is where you get hung on meat hooks. So you can see men wincing all over the audience, you see. But you can compare this dream With mythical medieval depictions of hell. Or the inferno as Dante called it. But the friend learns that the poor man. The reason for this is the poor man sinned once in his life. Just once. Boy I got to know this guy. What'd you do? I watched an R rated movie. Now whatever. He. He. Therefore, his punishment was to die neglected. But his punishment's all over in this life, because then he gets to enjoy paradise forever. See, because he only sinned once, so he gets paradise forever, but he has to be punished by having a lousy funeral. And I'm thinking, who cares? I don't care what my funeral is going to be like. I won't care. Get it? I won't care, because I'll be, never mind. The stylish funeral of the rich man, on the other hand, he was told in the dream, was his reward for his one good deed. He did one good thing. This rich man did one good thing, so he gets a stylish burial, followed by eternal punishment, endless punishment, from which he can never be saved and never be relieved. That's what Plato made a very clear point in, in three of his most famous works. You can't get out of there. But in the myth, you can have somebody go from the paradise part and mourn friends. But Jesus even shut that down. Abraham says, no, they have the law and the prophets. They have a message in which there's no hell. But they have a message of Jesus Christ suffering to enter into his glory. They have a message of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance. That's the point Jesus is making while he undoes this whole stupid notion of an endless punishment in an immortal hell. And if you pardon me, I'm being a little bit facetious with it because I'm amused by accusations of this church and me and other preachers who preach this as being heretics. And it's quite the reverse. A church that has this as a central doctrine is a cult and a heresy and is not edifying the church or bringing unity to the church. So it's kind of like a mirror effect in the accusations. But if you want to know about it, I'll tell you sometime. I'll write a book sometime about what it's been like to be in the arena and bloodied almost every time you go out to speak for 40 years. It's a fun thing because God is always the one that applies the ointment and gives you the strength back now the righteous one in this case the righteous the principle that comes out of this the righteous are punished for their sins in this life the wicked receive reward in this life for their their one good deed or in this case so that in the next life they may receive only punishment now where do we see this reflected in romans We see somebody committing one sin, but it's a very significant sin that he commits. His name is Adam, and his one sin allows sin as an apocalyptic power to rule over the whole human race thereafter until the invasion of one man whose one act of righteousness undoes that whole thing and gives life to all of the humanity that Adam's one sin brought death to. One act of righteousness summarizes the whole of the life of Jesus Christ in the flesh. His act of righteousness was an act of obedience to the Father's will, the Father's saving purpose, who was willing that none should perish, who was willing that all would be saved. Jesus became obedient to that father's saving purpose and therefore his one act of righteousness which was his obedience all the way to the extent of death by crucifixion meant salvation and life and restoration and rectification for all of humanity in all of its times and historical sequences and for all of creation while the one sin of the one man Adam Brought death and condemnation and despair to all creation in all of its times. Christ does the opposite. So, Paul takes that in Romans 5 and turns that thing into what it should be. So, the real concept of one wrong deed and one right deed is transferred to Adam and Christ in Romans precisely to show. That as one deed of Adam led to death and condemnation to all of humankind, so the one righteous deed of Jesus Christ led to justification in life for all of humankind. Or have you not read Romans 5.18? And 1 Corinthians 15.22, that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And that's the same all that died in Adam. Or have you not read the scriptures? Those who consider the parable of Lazarus and the rich man to be a foundation stone for their doctrine of an immortal and post-mortem hell are building on sand. Furthermore, they are showing their ignorance of the scriptures and of the power of God, which is his omnipotence married to his unrestricted love. And his perfect justice and righteousness. So he does this. Paul transfers the idea of one sin. And one righteous act. Precisely to show that one deed of Adam. Led to death and condemnation to all. Of humankind. So the righteous deed of Jesus Christ. Led to justification in life for all of humankind. Romans 15. Romans 5 that make that. 15 to 19. And as well as as we saw last week. Liberation for all of the screaming creation. Romans 8:19 to 23. In the setup for this chapter at the end of chapter 3 that is in the fate of the dead Bauckham had already provided the most important key to this. And he wrote this and I want to quote this one more time because I want to move into Romans in a moment. He says, quote, in 8 in an article called Visiting Places of the Dead in Extra Canonical Apocalypses. That is outside of the Bible, apocalypses. Jesus only imports that story into the canon of Scripture to blow it all to hell. I hope you understand that. We've already dealt with every mention of eternal with relation to fire and punishment and showed that it is not, should not be translated eternal. That's in our other eight segments of the hell series. Bacham writes this. Jesus' parable gives the motif of a visitor to the places of the dead, returning to report to them a novel twist. The already already told story, he gives a novel twist. The rich man proposes that Lazarus should be such a person. Either he should be sent back alive to the world of the living... He would then be one of the characters who dies temporarily and returns to life. Or Lazarus should return as a ghost to the land of the living to communicate with his brothers. It is not clear in what form it is to be envisaged. But in either case, it is envisaged or brought to the vision in order to be refused. But notice this. He goes on to say, Lazarus does not return. The parable's account of the places of the dead is not brought to the living by a person who visits the other world and returns. Here's the punch. Here's the whole punch of the whole series that I did on Lazarus. Quote, by employing this motif, this way of telling a story, in order to reject it, please notice it, by employing this motif in order to reject it, the parable subverts Its own revelation of the places of the dead. That's what I've been trying to say all along. The very fact that he proclaims this and reveals this is so that he can say the picture isn't even true of the places of the dead. The rich man's brothers have Moses and the prophets, he says. They do not need an apocalyptic report of a visit to the places of the dead, he closes. So here's my conclusion. Though there is a place for a hell of post-mortem torment in the ancient literature of Egypt and of Greece and some of the Pharisaical tractates, there is no such place in the law and the prophets, we call that the Old Testament, or in the gospel of God, told all through the New Testament, which is the power of salvation, as Romans teaches it, not only for all who believe, but for all, period. We'll be explaining more of that on Wednesday and Thursday. And this is the reason why Paul in all of his epistles never spoke of hell or warned people of hell. And when he spoke of not inheriting the kingdom of God, he was dealing with a matter of flesh versus spirit not a matter of afterlife he was dealing with this life the gospel does not reveal the righteousness of men at all the the Bible doesn't talk about the righteousness of men listen carefully because I'm going to hit some highlights it speaks of the righteousness of God the Bible does not speak of the relative righteousness of one who goes to paradise and the terrible evil of another, the relevant unrighteousness of another, the irrelevant unrighteousness of another who goes to hell. And Plato was talking about the same thing that a lot of preachers will say. You've got to be a really real, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll say that you got to be a really, really bad sinner to go to hell. Well, that doesn't wash either. Jesus Christ died for the ungodly, period, no matter how ungodly they were, Romans 5, 6. God is in the business of justifying the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. That's because Jesus Christ became the sin of the world's unbelief on the cross. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing the lie of unbelief that says that God does abandon his creation, and he doesn't. Jesus became the sin of the world's unbelief in his death and in his obedience to the extent of death. He became the faithfulness that was required for the world to be saved. So the gospel does not reveal the righteousness of men, but the righteousness of God. We have seen under the rubric of the royal motif in our last four Sundays that God's righteousness, I said, let me write it in the Greek. This is how I read it. I read the Greek because nothing makes sense to me in most of the English translations unless I get to the Greek text. It looks like this. It's dikaio, D-I-K-A-I-O, S-U-N-E, dikasune, then theu, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God isn't just an attribute. We've learned that in Psalm twenty-two, thirty-one, his righteousness is what he has done. And what we have learned that he has done is he has delivered his son from death. And in delivering his son from death and giving the faithful righteous one life, he gives life to all of creation and all of humanity that his son represents. That's God's righteousness. I'll talk about that all day long. My righteousness, I don't have a book on it. There's no pages. There is one page. It's blank. So, the gospel doesn't talk about the righteousness of men. In fact, when it comes to relevant and relative righteousness and comparative righteousness, Jesus said, well, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not even going to enter into the dominance of God called the kingdom. So, the, the Bible, the gospel, the law and the prophets in which the gospel is found, which is all about God's son, talks about God's righteousness, and that's what he has done. And that God's righteousness is revealed In his act of the deliverance of Jesus his anointed king from sin and death because of Jesus faithfulness the oppressors of Jesus from which he was delivered is sin which he was made on the cross in 2nd Corinthians 521 and death which he died on the cross and defeated through his resurrection. And so the gospel about God's son, the royal descendant of David according to the flesh, and God's anointed divine and human royal representative, he is called the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. That's all what Romans 1, 1 to 4 says in introducing this whole epistle. The righteousness of God is being apocalypsed. The word apocalypto doesn't mean unveiled or disclosed, or here's a statue, let me unveil it. It means invasively. It means it's an invasion into a present evil age to topple it and to topple its way of thinking and to topple its wrong and to set things right. That's what apocalypto means. The gospel is a divine invasion into the evil age on a rescue mission to rescue all of humankind and all of creation in all of its times because when Christ comes, all times will be simultaneous. And as I said this week... Eric the Red of the Vikings and Shaku Zulu of the Zulus will be arm in arm singing praise to God, being led by Jesus Christ in a chorus for all who have breath. So, that's a, we've already documented. I've already rocked you with a docu on that, Romans 15, Romans 14, Philippians 2, Psalm 150, etc., and so when the righteousness of God is apocalypsed, it means it's being invading. It's an invasion of this present evil age, as Galatians 1.4 says. This righteousness, God's, you're listening to the gospel now. You might have felt pious one day. You might have felt joyous. You might have swung and swayed and banged a tambourine off your head and someone next to you. And you were so happy that you were going to heaven, but you believed a false gospel at the root of which is a damnable heresy called an immortal, endless post-mortem hell for really bad people. And your, your joy was because you weren't one of them. And you were therefore not rejoicing in the gospel, but in the filthy rags of your own self-righteousness, which might have even been your self-righteous act of believing. Now then, the righteousness, God's, is also from faithfulness to faithfulness. The righteousness of God is apocalypsed in the gospel. From faithfulness to faithfulness. What does that mean? It's the thesis verse in Romans 117. What does it mean from faithfulness to faithfulness? It means God's faithfulness expressed to Jesus Christ's faithfulness. To the faithful, he shows himself faithful. God showed himself faithful to the faithful one who is Jesus Christ and gave him life. But as the Psalms teach, God not only gives life to his human and divine representative, Jesus Christ, but in giving life to him, he brings life to all of the domain of the king, which is all of humanity and all of creation. You say, well, I never heard that. That's because you've never heard a summary of all of the Bible and all of the gospel. You've only heard bits and pieces. You read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and you thought that's where bad people are going and the rich man's hell, and that's where good people are going or poor people are going or the oppressed are going in the paradise called Abraham's bosom. Now, if that's all heaven is, is sitting at a table with Abraham, that's going to get old someday. Never mind. Unless they serve really, really good pastries that you can't get fat on in a resurrection body, then I'm there for the duration. So then, the ultimate meaning of this debated phrase in Romans 117, and I'm going to hammer this out in subsequent messages. It's billed as the thesis verse of the entire epistle, I think rightly so, is that God righteously showed himself faithful. Righteousness is revealed from faithfulness. Whose? God's. To whom? Jesus. To the faithful he shows himself faithful, says Psalm 18 19 and 25 and he delivered me said jesus the messiah because he delighted in me he didn't deliver you because he delighted in you he delivered you because he delighted in jesus his son this is my son i'm very delighted and pleased with him and so because god is pleased with his son you're saved because god raised his son from the dead you've been raised from death You were once, and so was I, dead in trespasses, dead in sins. What could you do about it? I could believe my way out of it. No, you couldn't. You were made alive together with Christ, says Ephesians 2, 5, and saved by grace through faithfulness. Not faith, through a faithfulness that is not of yourself. Christ's faithfulness. I'm glad I lived long enough to get this squared away. Because I wasn't preaching it completely as it ought to be preached before. Though, thank God, the finished work was always at the root of our message. So God righteously showed himself faithful to his faithful son by giving him life from the dead and by doing so brought life to all humankind and liberation to all of the screaming creation in all of its times. So, in all the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament scriptures, which, incidentally, bracket the whole of Romans. Romans 1-2, the prophetic writings in the prophets. Romans sixteen twenty six, second to the last verse, just like second to from the first verse, the writings of the prophets. That brackets all of Paul as it brackets all of Luke and all of Acts, and all of Acts is... Luke's writing and what is the central verse that all the prophets all unanimously univocally said one thing about, but a universal restoration in Acts 321. So in all the law and prophets, all the Old Testament scriptures, Romans 1, 2, Romans 16, 26, including Habakkuk 2, 4 cited in Romans 1, 17, my righteous one, the righteous one will live by faithfulness. That's not you. That's the righteous one is Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins. He lives because of his faithfulness, his obedience to the extent of crucifixion. And God rewarded his obedience with life from the dead. The problem that people have is they haven't figured out that when he gave his son the righteous one life, he gave life to all mankind in him. If one died for all, then all died. If the one who died is Jesus Christ, and it is in romans six seven and second corinthians five fourteen and romans eight thirty four and God justified Jesus or rectified him by raising him from the dead, and if by Jesus Christ's resurrection all received life. Then we're talking about the universally saving significance of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. All are saved because of the faithfulness of one righteous one, Jesus Christ. Christianity doesn't like it when it's that centered in Jesus Christ. Christianity talks about, oh, it's all about Jesus. But when it gets down to me saying that it's all about Jesus and none about you, there's an offense created, isn't there? Oh, you won't want to admit it because you have poker faces. Incidentally in all the law and prophets there is no endless post-mortem punishment for especially egregious evildoers there is nothing about incurable evildoers being endlessly punished in the afterlife as there is in Plato and maybe even in Pluto and even in Goofy now as my friend Ricky Martin right there reminded me this week such a thing never entered into the mind of God they take their children he said and throw them into the fire where in Gehenna the the valley of the son of Hinnom he said that Jeremiah said it in his temple complex preachings and God said such a thing never entered into my mind so where did this post-mortem hell in which God throws children of his own creation into endless fire, where did it come from? The vain of the imaginations of men and the philosophers of men who claim to be wise but are shut down and shown to be stupid by a little message called the word of God's cross, the word of the cross, by which God took the wisdom of men like Plato and turned it into Moria, foolishness. The doctrine of an endless post-mortem punishment arose from the vain imagination of men who were indeed and who are considered by their contemporaries and sometimes by people who read their books as wise, but whom God has exposed as foolish by the word of the cross. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save the gospel unveils invasively the gospel is the invasion of God's righteousness into this evil age to save and rescue reconcile and redeem and set right rectify Again, God ac- apocalypses this is all Romans one seventeen without even looking at it really. His own righteousness, God apocalypses his own righteousness in the justification of Jesus, who's the justified one? Jesus is, according to romans six seven according to romans three twenty six God is just, and he is the justifier. Of one by his own faithfulness that's the original Greek text in the best manuscripts It doesn't say one who believes in Jesus or is of the faith of Jesus It says God is just and he is the justifier of one Jesus by that one's faithfulness That's why we're saved by grace 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 through faithfulness not of yourselves not of your faith rely on your works to go to an afterlife that's pleasant and happy and you're relying on filthy rags rely on your faith and you're relying on the same filthy rags because your faith is an act of human believing You're not saved by an act of your human believing. You're saved by an act of Jesus Christ's faithfulness that ended in the extent of death by crucifixion. Get it through your head. In fact, as Jesus said in Luke 9, let these sayings sink into your heart. Let them sink down, let them take root. You know what then might happen? You might be a force for good in people's lives. You might be manifesting the very life of Jesus in your mortal bodies to people who desperately want to see someone who truly loves them unconditionally. You might be able to explain a gospel to people that will save them from the despair that a pseudo gospel just keeps them in. Let these sayings sink into your mind and your hearts. It is God's righteousness that's invading the present evil age and it's doing it by this gospel. To be apocalypsed, apocalypto means that God's righteousness is His act in his act of justifying his son and with him, because of him, all of mankind, including your most favorite egregious sinner. Even those who pierced him Tell me a crime, you tell me a crime in history that is more evil and egregious and heinous than penetrating Jesus Christ's flesh with a blade, than crucifying the Son of God, than piercing the flesh of Yahweh, nailing him to a cross naked, throwing crap at him swearing at him, mocking him, mocking his sexual organs, abusing him. You tell me a crime more egregious than that. And I'll tell you that in Romans, as well as in Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him, even those that pierced him, even those who pierced him. And when every eye sees him, every knee genuflects to him. And when every knee genuflects to him, every tongue is loosed, including this rich man's tongue. To sing praise to me, says God. To sing praise to me, says God. Why do you think he chose Paul, Saul of Tarsus, to preach this gospel? Because he could appreciate it. He held the coats of the people that butchered and murdered and stoned to death, one of Jesus' choice messengers. He would have done the same if they had crucified Jesus in front of his eyes. He would have loved it. But he became the biggest builder of the church. The biggest terror down of it became the biggest builder of it, a master builder. Better get a hold of the grace of God. No, don't. Better let the grace of God get a hold of you. So, in closing, a couple verses hit me pretty strong this week. I finally got a hold of a better septuagint. It's called the NETS, the New English Translation of the Septuagint. and was done in 2007. And then I got Young's Literal Translation, the Yahweh edition. Yahweh is the way you speak about God in, as the God of Israel. Not Jehovah, but Yahweh, the Yahweh edition. And I rediscovered a couple of verses It has to do with Jesus, the one who died, is the one whom God justified by his faithfulness. And because of his obedience, all humankind, once in Adam and dead in sins, are made alive with Christ's own life, which is life from the dead, a special kind of life. That life never goes out of style. In the binary notion of humanity, some people, like apparently righteous Lazarus, Go to a place of comfort after death. While particularly incurable, that's what Plato called them sinners, apparently like the rich man in the same parable, end up in a hopeless and endless place of fire and torment. Again, that reminds me of uh, Linus. Speaking of Christmas, Linus in the Christmas story, my favorite line in that whole thing. I've watched it with my grandchildren and my children. They go to find a Christmas tree and he finds a pink aluminum tree and he knocks on it and you hear it clang, clang. And Linus, the great theologian of Luke's gospel says this really brings Christmas close to a person. And then I think an endless place of unrelenting torment that really brings Christ close to a person. Not really. Again, this is a notion of man and not of God. This is the foolishness of men that boasts against the wisdom of God, and by doing so is shown to be foolishness. All of our righteousnesses or righteous deeds are but filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. But here's the verse I hit this week on the NETS, the New English Translation of the Septuagint. The psalmist said, I will speak of God's righteousness all day long. Meaning, if I speak of God's righteousness all day long, then there ain't no room for me to talk about man's, is there? Except for the righteousness righteousness of the righteous one man, Christ Jesus. And the psalmist in Psalm seventy-one sixteen says, "I will enter in the Lord's dominance." You talk about people wanting to make Jesus Lord. You can't make Him Lord. God already made Him Lord, and you can't even enter into an experience of the kingdom of God except through this revelation I'm telling you today. Except for understanding His righteousness, seek the kingdom of God and His 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 righteousness. We enter into the dominance of God over our lives. We enter into the lordship of Christ over the living and the dead. Through obedience to this glorious gospel, this gospel of the glory of the Christ. Our faith becomes a gift of God that God has already done it. Not the means of our justification, but a gift after our justification by which we enter into the dominance, and the, the way they said it here is splendidly, Psalm seventy-one, twenty-four. I will enter the Lord's dominance, O Lord, I will recall righteousness of you alone, I will recall righteousness of you alone in it the gospel I'm not ashamed of it why because I'm not comparing my righteousness to yours or yours to mine the righteousness of God is invasive through the gospel I'm going to speak about that all day long you can't quit that gospel because there's never any quitting it's all day long and that means all the age long Again, Psalm 71:24 says, "All day long my tongue will contemplate your righteousness." The Young's literal translation, Yahweh edition, of Psalm 71:15 to 16 says, "My I'll do the King James the King Jamesy thing so that it can even catch up the King James part. My mouth recounteth thy righteousness." Rick, what are you doing this morning? My mouth is recounting thy righteousness, Lord. My mouth is recounting, recollecting, contemplating, proclaiming God's righteousness. What was his righteousness? It's what he did when he raised Jesus from the dead, his faithful, righteous one. And when he did that, his righteousness gave righteousness in life to all humanity and all creation, something that's going to be demonstrated at the parousia when Christ comes. That's something worth talking about. It's better than making a scapegoat out of a political figure and acting like people that are demonically trying to crucify somebody. It's better than that. It's better than watching the news. It's better than listening to your favorite newscaster as your pastor. Which is what people do today. My mouth recounteth thy righteousness all the day, thy salvation. For I have not known the numbers... He says, i got to talk about your salvation because I don't know the numbers. You know why? You can't number the number of people that he saved because it's everybody. I don't know the numbers. I don't know the numbers. I saw an innumerable company of people redeemed praising God, says John in Revelation 7. Why? I don't know the numbers. I just know it's all because of God's righteousness. Kill me if you don't like the message. I don't care. Kill me if you don't like the message. I don't care. Slander me. Malign me. Say I'm a cult leader. Here I am. Welcome to cult. But I will proclaim God's righteousness all day long. And you can't stop me. And I'm speaking to invisible persons as well as visible ones. The Lord rebuke you. So I'm going to close with a man's name. I've quoted this many times. You see, I want you, you think I'm having mercy on you. You're going pretty long today. Let me tell you something. I'm supposed to do this all day long. I'm being merciful to your capacities. Paul did got a hold of this and he preached until a guy named Eutychus fell out of the balcony and died. Paul went over, raised him from the dead, and kept preaching. Excuse me, I've got to go resuscitate uh, Eutychus. Here. William Law. What a weird name to have. But you know what he said? He said something so powerful that it was quoted in a theological journal, and then it was quoted again by Richard Hayes in his book on Galatians. And then I quoted it, and I'm picking it up again. William Law said this, Suppose one man to rely on his own faith, and another to rely on his own works then the faith of the one and the works of the other are equally the same worthless, filthy rags. William Law got the grace right. To that I'll add this. If that were the case, and it's not, if it were the case, and let me tell you it's not, that one man can rightly rely on his works in order to have a blessed afterlife, and another man can rely on his own faith in order to have a blessed afterlife, then both men would miss out on the blessed afterlife because eternal life is the gift of God to all of humankind through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The wages of sin is death, death for all, but the gift of God, meaning the gift of God to all is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's Romans 6, 23. They botch it in the Romans road because that's how you're supposed to witness the Romans road. Admit that you're a sinner. But did you really mean it? Did you really mean it? Now believe that Jesus is the son of God and confess with your mouth and do all this stuff which we've shown as the righteousness of faith, which isn't the righteousness of God. But did you really, really mean it? Did you make Jesus the Lord of your life? I, I did the best I, like, the best you could, eh? You're going to hell. <laughs> Let me check the sincerity meter. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect like mine was. You're going to hell. You take that little gospel of yours and you go to hell. I'm just saying that because you can't go. In closing, number two, in spite of everything that's going on in your life, the people that you've lost, the people that you fear you'll lose. The things going on, the unresolved problems, the unresolved situations, the things you wish to God would go away. But they aren't because they're the pressure that's conforming you into Jesus' own image. In spite of all that, The justification of Jesus Christ by God is the act of God's righteousness and that action is the justification of all creation and the glorification of Christ through suffering is the glorification of all mankind and all of creation through its suffering so that the suffering of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's imminently going to follow in us in spite of everything that's going on in your life. And everything that's going on in the world, I want you to know something as a pastor. Maybe not, I'm I'm not maybe your pastor, but I am a pastor. And pastors speak like this. I want you to know that everything is all right. I'm speaking as God sees it. Everything is all right. And even those who have died, however, and by whatever means are alive to God. Luke 20:37 Jesus said all are alive to God which is why he says I am the god of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob I'm not I wasn't the god I am their god cuz they're living walk by this faith have confidence in god and hopeful expectation Let's read Romans with the light on, this light on. And let's live our lives in this light. More specifically, let's close by reading Romans 1.17. That which is probably the thesis verse. This is the verse that shines its light on all throughout Romans. That's why I'm saying Romans in toto. Romans 117, listen to this translation. In it, that's the gospel of God about his son. The righteousness of God is being apocalyptically revealed. It is being invasive. It is invading this evil age. From faithfulness, that's God's. We're talking about God's righteousness being revealed, not to man's faithfulness, but God's righteousness from God's faithfulness to faithfulness. That's Christ, God's sons. It's the father's faithfulness to the son's faithfulness. Just as it is written in the prophets, that is. The prophets who? This time it's Habakkuk. The righteous one will live. Listen carefully. The word ek means in Gingrich's own lexicon. The righteous one will live as a result of. The ek here means as a result of faithfulness. The righteous one is Jesus Christ. He lives as a result of his own faithfulness, his own one righteous act of obedience for all mankind by which all are justified. The gospel, why be ashamed of that? The one righteous one is justified by the faithfulness of God and with that one righteous one, according to Romans 5.18, all are given justifying life. How do you set right, rectify someone who's dead? What's their situation? Death. How do you rectify someone in death? You give them life from the dead, Christ's own life. That's the gospel. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that the gospel will find roots in the hearts of many people and destroy, please, Father, destroy very gently walls that I've even seen in this place this past week. Walls in the hearts that keep men in self-righteous judgmentalism and arrogance. And I only say that not as a judgmental thing but because I want to see them delivered into the grace and the joy of God. May this message result in joy, for I'm only here to help the joy of the recipients, not to dominate their faith through weird doctrines, but to help their joy. May the result of this message be joy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks.